Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. We're standing on the Ponte Fabricio, also known as the Ponte dei Quattro Capi, the oldest standing working bridge in Rome. And we're listening to the water of the Tiber flowing beneath us. And there's some really awesome accordion music in the background as well. Yes. So why are we on this bridge? Well, um, today we're going to be talking about all of the ancient and uh, other old things in Rome that have been repurposed and made new again and are still being used sometimes for the same purpose, sometimes for totally different purposes. Great. Probably not all of it, but some of it. Some. <laughs> all of it would be like that what? Would, that would take years probably. Your whole life. Okay. <laughs> But we decided to start on this particular bridge. Why? Because this is, this bridge was built in the first century AD, I believe. And it's still in use today. Now, it has been repaved and rebuilt a little bit, but the, the foundations are the same. So if you look at it from when you're not standing on it, the pilings, pylons. is that the word? Pylons, pilings, those are original. And it's pretty cool to me that a bridge is still standing after almost 2,000 years. Right. And in the distance, if we look to our left in the way we're facing, there's a tower, a brick tower. Yeah, it's Torre dei Crescenzi, if I'm not mistaken. It's on the Tiber Island. It's a little brick medieval tower. There's not very many medieval towers still standing in Rome because they were, in, I think, the 13th century, the Pope had them all leveled. So few might have survived, but most of them are gone. It is a pretty well-preserved and authentic medieval tower. And Katie's favorite thing about this tower, which I love myself, is there's a little bust, an ancient bust of a woman's head. Not very big. I mean, it's far up, so we can't really tell. But I would guess it's only about maybe even not even a foot long from the base to the top of her head. And it's, it's just sitting in the tower like there's a little niche in there. And it's just stuck in there. Oh, it's just a little tiny head just in the tower for no reason. We don't know who it is. It's up a little high. We can't really see her face very well. Yeah. But it's a little tiny woman's head. Yeah, I believe we've talked about it before on the podcast. Probably. We should take a picture of it. We'll post a picture of this on our social media sites the day this comes out. But yeah, so that's not really repurposed as opposed to just decoration. And that does sometimes happen. Like you'll see particularly medieval buildings the ones that have kept their original appearance will sometimes have little bits and fragments of ancient decorations like this just sort of walled into them for no real apparent reason, but we like it. Do you think that somebody just maybe found that head and set it there and years later it's still there? I have no idea how that got there and it, and it makes me so curious that I almost want to write a story or a book about it. Which you probably will. <laughs> All right, so let's pause and we'll walk to our next location. Okay. But before we leave, I want to just give a euro to this accordion player on the street here who is um, just doing such a great job. Where are we heading? Do you want to tell us as we are walking or, or we're heading to the Jewish ghetto? Right. So we're standing in uh, the Jewish ghetto, which is one of my favorite neighborhoods. What about you? You like it? Oh yeah, I love it, of course. 
and uh, probably the main monument in this neighborhood is the Portico of Octavia, which we've talked about, I think, a little bit. We have. We talked about it when the scaffolding first came off of it. Right. And if you've read my book, Midnight in the Piazza, you know that there's a scene that takes place in front of it. Let's go down here away from this crowd just a little bit. Yes. There's a tour guide going on right yes. now. So we're going to listen to... He's not as dashing as Nigel from Midnight in the Piazza, my tour yes. guide, with the floppy hair. But you only know this if you've read Midnight in the Piazza. And if you haven't yet, what are you waiting for? But I digress. Yes. So this site, which is an ancient site, obviously, uh, <laughs> what we're talking about today is mostly ancient <laughs> stuff. Back in the day, it was a portico, meaning it was an area of the city that was surrounded by a covered, columned rectangle. Like if you can imagine a little covered columned walkway that made a sort of delineated space around a couple of temples and there were also little niches shooting off of it with other sites uh, other rooms and things like that but what really remains of it is just the entryway the sort of monumental entrance that had a marble pediment and columbia uh, oh my gosh very angry dog over here <laughs> who has a angry. muzzle on for good reason yeah, for good reason, reason. Oh no, that the other dog is like running away. It's like, get me as far away from this other dog as I can. Um, they're both the same type of dog. Both though. the same kind of dog, yeah. Anyway, so um, with Colombian, Colombian, Colombian coffee and Corinthian columns. Sorry, <laughs> Corinthian columns, fluted Corinthian columns. Anyway, what I love about this place, besides just that it is beautiful to look at, is that it was repurposed in the Middle Ages as a fish market. The residents of this area would go fishing in the river, which is right behind us, and they would sell their fish right here in the sort of semi-shelter of this space, of this ancient space. And this is probably one of the reasons that it survived, because most ancient sites didn't survive. If they did, there was usually a reason for it. It was usually because the site was repurposed as something else. Most commonly that happened as ancient temples were turned into churches. We might talk about that a little more if we see any of those. But I love this one because it was such a, let's say, pedestrian sort of use that they gave it. Just this sort of outdoor fish market. They just needed a little bit of shelter. And it has even grown on since then and had more identities afterwards. A church was built into it, Sant'Angelo in Pescheria. Yes, it has a much more modern facade, and you can't really tell that it has this sort of ancient past, um, but it is built on the foundations, and I'm sure there are some internal walls as well that were reutilized. And also, to the left of the structure, if you're looking at it, are apartments that were literally built right into it in the Middle Ages, and they're still inhabited, which is just, just amazing to me. You know, I've noticed there's one apartment over there that was for sale when I lived here back in 2013 and 14 and surprised to notice that that apartment is still for sale. Now I'm not saying it didn't sell in the meantime but I was thinking huh if your apartment is built into ancient walls <laughs> you know maybe, wants to risk maybe it. it's full of mold or the demons of a th 2,000 years. I would say m more likely than mold and demons is just structural worries. You know I think people are probably afraid to live in a place that is so structurally ancient and just periculoso, dangerous, precarious, I guess is the word I'm looking for. But that leads me to another site that's just right next to this. All right, we'll walk over there. Do you want um, to talk? Actually, as we... let's go on the little bridge because that's the best spot to see it. If you're following us and you're actually in Rome and you want to do this along with us, if you've saved this episode for your trip to Rome, 
right to the right of the structure without going down the ramp to go to the lower level. Go to the right and there's a little tiny footbridge. And from there you can get a really great shot of the theater of Marcellus. Unfortunately, the dogs are over there. Walking toward that dangerous dog. (laughs) So um, if we disappear, all of a sudden you know why. He's got a complex for sure, being so small. So this is the theater of Marcellus, uh, which is right beside portico of Octavia. If you remember from the book, this is the one that Beatrice thinks is the Colosseum. And if you look at it, you can see why. It does have sort of, if you just look at one little bit of it, you can sort of see why someone who's never seen the Colosseum might assume that this was it. It's got a couple of layers. The top layer is pretty much gone of arched columns, arched supports. Um, But what it was, was actually not anything like the Colosseum in which there were games going on, but it was a musical performance hall. So it was actually a theater and it's not round or oval. It's a half circle. So we're looking at the round side and it was basically taken over by, oh my gosh, I'm so bad at this. Whenever I go out and talk about Rome and like I don't prepare, like if I were doing a tour, I would have double checked all of my facts. And I was like, hey, it's a nice day. Let's go outside. Yeah. But sometimes I forget to double check my facts. And if it's a place that I don't talk about on every tour that I do. Sometimes I'm like, oh wait, is it the Orsini family or the Savelli family? I think it was the Orsini family, one of the really most important late medieval, early Renaissance Roman families who took over this site. And that's what happened actually during the Middle Ages. The wealthy families in Rome, there were not very many of them, maybe a handful, maybe 10, 15 wealthy families, powerful families. They would take over ancient sites that they could then turn into fortresses. So the Frangipani family took over the Colosseum. Another family took over the Castel Sant'Angelo. And this happened a lot. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, it was the Orsini family who took over the Theater of Marcellus. And it did pass uh, hands a few times. It did pass into the Savelli family, I believe, eventually. But that was later on in the Renaissance. Um, But in the medieval times, it was taken over by this wealthy family. And they just moved in. And they just barricaded, you know, as much as they could of it. Anything that was open, they filled in. And they moved into the top floor. That's what I was going to ask is, how do they take these things over? How do you take over the Colosseum? You just get in there one time when it's empty and start building walls? Well, the idea is that you have a private guard. Any important family was going to have their own armed guards to protect them because it was such a dangerous time and such a time of lawlessness where there was no protection from the government. If you had anything to protect, you were going to be paying people to protect you, armed guards. And so what I can assume happened is that the family, yes, just kind of went in, had their guards surrounded, and just started building some kind of battlements or something like that. So it was a very medieval, probably not very luxurious residence at first, but over time it was transformed into a palace. And that really happened under the 16th century Renaissance architect Baldassare Peruzzi, who's, by the way, Katie, the same architect who designed one of our favorite villas in Rome, which is Villa Farnesina. Ah. So same architect. So early 1500s, he turns the top floor or the top two floors into a palace, complete with gorgeous coffered ceilings, frescoed walls, beautiful floors, many different rooms, gorgeous little windows. If you look up, you know, you can see that there are actual windows in there. Probably some have been replaced because some look quite modern. But it was turned into a true palace with a courtyard in the middle. And of course, that kind of thing was not sustainable. Like no one family in this day and age can afford to have that kind of palace because of taxes and all the other things that go along with it. So it was eventually divided up into apartments. 
And so now there are several apartments in there. I've never been in there, but I have seen photographs because one of these apartments was for sale for a period, and it was listed in the New York Times as costing something like $54 million, so whatever the euro equivalent of that is. Thanks. And I looked, it was, you know, like an eight-bedroom, I mean, not an eight-bedroom, an eight-room apartment. So it's not that big if you really sit and think eight rooms. Like if you were to buy a house these days, eight rooms might be about average for a house house. So it's not enormous, but because of its location and because of its history, it costs what it costs. Well, and it has all these ancient frescoes on it. True, true. Amazing stone floors. Yeah, incredible. Is it noon, Katie? It must be. <laughs> it must be. It's noon, Katie. That's what it is. It's noon in Rome. It's always easy to know what time it is in Rome. Especially on a Sunday. I read a book years ago by an expat who lived here for one year, and it was called A Thousand Bells at Noon. And whenever I hear the bells ringing, especially on a Sunday at noon, I always think of that book. That's a great title. Yes. Yes, it is. So should I pause as we walk to our next location? Okay. We're standing at... Largo, Argentina, which is kind of like one of the most central spots in the whole city. If you were wondering what the cheering is behind us, that is the marathon, the Rome Marathon going on right behind us. Yeah, so that's actually, obviously this episode's going to come out after it's long done. But right now, as we record, the Rome Marathon is going on. It's also super hot out, and so everybody's running past, dripping in sweat toward the end of the run. And uh, we were just marveling at them. But it's also right next to this other site that we wanted to talk about. Here's another spot that I adore because it has such a charming and unexpected repurposed purpose. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so the site is actually a sacred site. It was in ancient times. There are four temples here, the remains of four temples here. And they're some of the oldest ancient temples in Rome, actually. They're not in the greatest shape in the world. If you've been to the Pantheon, it's nothing like that. <laughs> um, one of them, the one on the far right, if you were standing on the east side, because it's a rectangular space, is a little bit better preserved than the others, and that's because in the medieval period, part of it was turned into a church, a Christian church. And if you look over there, Katie, you can see there are a few frescoes back in that little niche area that has sort of a roof ah, over it. Yes, red, white, and blue. Yeah, so that little area, where because that particular temple became a church it is the best preserved of all four but they're all you know I mean you can't really like if you walked past you might not know what the site was so it does take a little bit of imagination and there's a lot of like ancient debris just strewn in the middle you know just like bits of marble that you just have no idea I mean probably the archaeologists who are taking care of the site know what it is but as a viewer it just kind of looks like random pieces of marble lying everywhere the site was actually discovered in the 1920s because Mussolini was doing so much rebuilding at that time that they were constantly like tearing down old buildings and rebuilding them, or especially streets and things like that. And I don't know what was here up until the 1920s, but whatever it was, it was torn down and they started excavating, well, they started digging a foundation for a new building and they came across the ruins of these four ancient temples. And luckily, someone was smart enough to be like, hold on a second, let's leave it. <laughs> let's not build something over it. So that's good. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, and the site just kind of was sectioned off. I don't think anything was really done with it beyond probably some archaeological work. And eventually, in the 1960s, 
some woman, and I don't know her name, but an older woman who is obviously a cat lover started feeding the stray cats that were sort of gravitating to this area on their own. Because as you can imagine, I mean, it's an open area, there's no traffic, there's no people. So it's just kind of an open space, there's some grass, there's some things to climb on. It's a natural place that a cat would want to be. So this woman started sort of feeding the cats that would congregate here. And from that, you know, lone person doing this random thing by herself, it eventually over the years became an actual recognized charity. And the site is now considered, I don't know if it's an official title, but it is unofficially at least considered the cat sanctuary of Rome. And at any given time, there are dozens of cats that you can spot down here if you just kind of wait and watch long enough. There's also a little section at the end that's closed off where the volunteers can go down and they take care of the cats. They do deworm them. They spay and neuter them. They give them shots if necessary. And, and obviously they feed them and clean up after them. So isn't this also where possibly Caesar might have been murdered? It's definitely near where Caesar was murdered, but it's not right in this spot, um, but it's very, very close. So if you look across to the west side of the rectangle, there's a street, and actually this is a street that the tram number eight runs along, and it's pretty much between us and that, more or less in front of the theater, the Teatro Argentina, which is right across the street. It's more or less in between there that they say is a spot where Caesar was assassinated. And the reason he was assassinated there, he wasn't in one of these temples. He wasn't assassinated in a temple. Basically, it's the structure that was right on the other side, right next door to these temples, which was the, it was an enormous structure called the Theater of Pompey, Rome's biggest theater. And it had a huge courtyard, huge long rectangular open space. And at the far end of it, which is this side, so the theater was actually quite a ways from here, because this courtyard was so long. On the far end of it, there was a room, and it had several rooms off of the courtyard, but this one particular room was being used as a substitute for the curia. The curia is where the Senate met. There was a curia in the forum, and it was burned down, and Caesar, Julius Caesar, was building a new one, and there is Caesar's Curia is there now, very, very heavily restored. But at that moment, there was no Curia, and so they were meeting out of necessity in a room off of the Theater of Pompey. That is where that room was, like I said, um, just on the other side of this site, sort of where the street is, but obviously several meters down. I mean, it hasn't been excavated, so we don't really know exactly what's down there or even if anything is down there, but that's the spot that it happened. Oh, very interesting. Okay, well, where should we head next? We're going to make an attempt to cross the street where the marathon is going. I don't know if they're going to let us, because we would like to go to Piazza Navona. Let's see if we can do it. If we can't, we're going to just sit somewhere and talk about Piazza Navona. All right. But, you know, you're listening, so what does it matter to you? I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> Until then, I'm going to pause. Uh, okay, so we can't get across the marathon. We could, but it was going to mean standing in the sun waiting for an interminably long time and uh, we just didn't want to do that. <laughs> no, nor do we have the time. So we are headed back towards Trastevere, but I didn't want to do this episode without at least mentioning Piazza Navona because it's the epitome of repurposed Rome and the layers of Rome that you can see right in front of your eyes, which is what excites me most about Rome more than anything else is the historical layers. Piazza Navona, if you've been there, you know it's a long, oblong square, um, oval-shaped, flat on one end and curved on the other end. 
Yes, we've talked about it being a stadium. Yeah, we've talked about it, but that's really what makes it so fascinating. It was the stadium of Domitian where human games took place, mostly races, track and field kind of stuff. After it fell into disrepair after the fall of Rome, and I'm sure that a lot of the marble from the seats and the arches and things were, were taken away bit by bit. Some, of course, survives. Always, something always survives. And in the Middle Ages, when people were <clears throat> looking out for new places to live, you know, what they did was they're like, okay, here is a half of a wall. That's a half a wall that I don't have to build. <laughs> you know, like that was the mentality because there were so few resources available to people at that time. You can just like go down to your local building guy and buy some stuff. <laughs> um, so you really had to sort of forage it yourself. And you'll see in the walls of buildings, even much older than the Middle Ages, even Renaissance buildings, you'll see ancient columns just kind of stuck into the side of them. Sometimes maybe that was there, but what I think more likely happened was that was a column that had been sort of just abandoned, was lying on its side most likely, and it was just sort of taken and used as an extra foundation, you know, as an extra stabilizing agent for the building so that it would be less likely to fall down. You can still see this all over the city. But with the Piazza Navona, people slowly, slowly began to move in, and they followed the shape of the stadium. They were basically building their homes only where the seating area was and where the arches and the, the main structure was because the middle part was just was just open it was a stadium so it was empty so there wasn't anything to work with there so oh, this the motorcycle <laughs> so they moved into the area of the seating and the and the actual actual structure of the stadium and the homes followed this little curving line an oblong shape now today those buildings that are in Piazza Navona, those homes and, and apartment buildings, they are much newer than the Middle Ages, but the structure is in some way still that ancient structure. You know, it's always like, where does the ancient leave off and the, the medieval take over? Where does the middle, medieval leave off and the modern take over? Those lines are hazy. You don't really always know, but there is some of both, which is what I mean when I talk about those layers of history. So when you go into Piazza Navona, you see that shape. It's such a particular and distinct shape for a square to be in. And that's the reason, because that was the shape of the stadium. Piazza Navona has two big churches in it, but one, of course, is the most dominating focal point of the entire square. Well, some would argue that the central fountain is the dominating well, both. focal point. Both of them, yeah. yeah. For, I mean, from a structure standpoint, <laughs> from a, what's built around the old stadium standpoint. Mm -hmm. Do you know at what point that church appeared or how that ended up there? Yes, the church you're talking about is Sant'Agnese in Agone, St. Agnes in Agone. Now, by the way, my love of toponymy, place names, and my love of word origins comes into play here. The word Agone was the word for those ancient races. That's what they were called, those ancient games. And so that's why it has that name. But St. Agnes, a little bit of, let's say, early medieval or late ancient history here, St. Agnes, I'm not going to go into the whole thing because it might not be that interesting, but St. Agnes was basically martyred in the stadium right on the spot where the church is now. Um, and How? Well, the story goes, <laughs> the legend goes, some very important Roman wanted to marry her. She was a Christian, a beautiful young Christian girl. She refused to marry him. 
He was offended for revenge. He brought her to a brothel that was, or he captured her, brought her to a brothel that was on that spot because I guess they had brothels in the stadiums back in those days. And he was going to force her into prostitution. And so he had her stand up there in front of everyone and stripped off all of her clothing. And the miracle was, according to the legend, that her hair grew so fast. And of course, it depends on the translation whether we're talking about the hair on her head or also her body hair. We don't really know. <laughs> but either way, it grew so fast that it covered her nakedness. But then she was killed anyways, and I believe that she was decapitated on the spot. Covered in hair. Covered in hair. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, what a jerk. Yeah. Um, they were back in those days. So, you know, as soon as Christianity was legalized, very shortly thereafter, a small church sprung up on that spot, dedicated naturally to her, with the name Inangone, because it was on the site of those games. And that church was there for a long time, until Pope Innocent X came along in the mid-1600s. He was um, from the Pamphili family and his, that was where his family palace was, in that square. The square was not anywhere near as monumental or prestigious back in those days as it is now. So in his effort to clean it up and make it into a more monumental and beautiful square and worthy to be the square where the Pope had his family residence, he commissioned the church that we now see there, Sant'Agnese Nangone. It was built over there were several different architects working on it over the years because some quit or got reassigned to new jobs. But I think of it as Boromini's church. He was the one that gave it its distinctive facade, which if you know anything about Boromini's art, it's just so typically him with all of the curves and all of the movement and sort of this embracing atmosphere. Like it, the church looks like it's almost going to like, like the, it's so concave that it looks like it's about to reach out and embrace you. And so... Yeah, I would say Boromini, but there were other architects working on it as well, so not just him. The other place that I wanted to talk about, and would have, we would have gone there if it weren't for this pesky marathon. People, why do you need to run so much? <laughs> Seriously. I wanted to take you, Katie, to Piazza di Pietra. It's not far from the Pantheon. If you leave the Pantheon and start walking up towards Via del Corso, you should probably pass by Piazza di Pietro. It's not far from the, mon the um, Parliament building. Whoa! We just, whoa, all of a sudden the street became incredibly trafficy. Human There's traffic. There's a big group of bridesmaids and a bride just went by us. No, it's a hand, bachelorette, bachelorette party. party, hand night. Woo, that smell of incense is strong. Whoa. whoa. I'm surprised you guys can't smell that at home. This was non chapa It might remind you of places like college. We're actually walking back towards Restevere. I'm making Tiffany talk a whole lot while she's walking but you know it's nice to hear these stories as we walk toward lunch I think. I think so too and so we're walking along a street I love to walk along because it leads right to Ponte Sisto. I used to walk along this street practically every day going towards Trastevere where I lived for many many years. It's Via dei Pettinari but what I wanted to talk about was not Via dei Pettinari but Piazza di Pietra. Piazza di Pietra was the home, uh, it still is the home of the, the ancient temple to Hadrian, Emperor Hadrian. This temple was preserved because the site of it was turned not into homes or into a church, but it was turned into the Roman customs house. I mean, it was probably turned into something else before that, but that's what it became in the 1500s under the architect Giacomo della Porta. What's a customs house, would you say? I don't 
really know. I just know that it has something to do with customs, as in like when you take import or export goods, something to do with the customs that you would have to pay. Like, yeah. like Dogana, it's called Palazzo della Dogana. So I would assume it had something to do with that. It would be bureaucracy building, more or less. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's gorgeous because it was done really well by the architect. He just took the parts where there was no ancient structure and he didn't try to make it look ancient. You know, the rest of the building looks very Renaissance. But then you have these gorgeous columns. I don't know, there's something like 13 or 14 of these huge fluted Corinthian columns. I mean, most of them have been put back together because, you know, they were in pieces at one point, but it doesn't matter. It still gives you such a great, it, it just, it makes such an amazing impact when you're, you're just walking along the street and all of a sudden you walk into this small square and boom, there's this ancient temple right in front of you. Well, so. and it's so large. Like, yeah. I think that's part of more than the Pantheon, really. It just makes you feel extremely tiny. Well, I don't know that it's bigger than the Pantheon, but the square is much smaller. Maybe that's So it. by comparison, it feels like when you're in this Piazza della Rotonda, where the, the Pantheon is, there's just a lot of space in that square, and there's a lot of area. So even though the Pantheon is also just as, if not more, amazing to walk upon, especially if you've never seen it, I think that the Piazza di Pietra Temple of Hadrian is just, it's more unexpected because it just looks like a regular ordinary square. There's not usually that many tourists there, or at least there didn't used to be. And you just all of a sudden walk up and boom, there's this really wide temple just right in front of you. And it's actually one of those places that I've been in multiple times, but for whatever reason, I never remember exactly where it is in my mental map. And so I feel like every single time I come upon it, it's like that same thing where you're like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> for it being such a large, big white columns, you know, you'd think it would be a little bit more obvious. Well, that's what I love about Rome is that there are many ancient cities in the world, but most of them have not been inhabited in an uninterrupted way for 2,000, 3,000 years even like Rome has. These sites, they never were completely 100% abandoned. And that's what I love about Rome more than anything else. Well, we should leave it there. Thinking about what in our own lives we should repurpose perhaps. It could be a bigger question for another episode. But thanks for the tour. You're welcome, thanks for coming. Yeah, and thanks then- Thanks for suggesting it. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Join us again, bye. We welcome your questions and your feedback. Reach the show by emailing bittersweetlife at mail.com. That's bittersweetlife at mail.com.